Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On February 10, 2010, Greensburg, Pennsylvania was going through their second major snowstorm in five days. The county asked their residents to please move their vehicles off the street so that snow plows could come through and clear the roads. Residents all over the county did exactly that and moved their cars wherever they could. Some into driveways, others into garages, and when that wasn't an option, some residents took to parking in local parking lots for the night. At around 6.30 a.m. on what was now February 11th, a man who had parked his truck in the Greensburg-Salem Middle School parking lot walked over to pick it up so he could head out for the day. But it wasn't that simple. Someone had stuffed an entire trash can under his truck. Naturally, he couldn't just drive over the trash can because it would tear up his undercarriage and what have you, so he got down and pulled it out. What he found inside was the beginning of a homicide investigation that would leave the entire world afraid of the evil that humans are capable of. Inside that trash can, the man found the body of a female wrapped in plastic with a bag covering her head. Police floored it to that middle school parking lot and they didn't have to go far because the police station was less than a mile down the road straight down North Main Street. Bystanders stood by as the medical examiner's office showed up and placed the entire trash can into a body bag to be taken away for processing. They didn't want to eliminate any evidence that could be found in, on, or around that trash can, and the easiest way to preserve all of that evidence was to take the entire thing with them. There wasn't much going on in Greensburg at that time other than the snowstorm, so the news of the body in the trash can was all over the local media within minutes. What stood out was that even with all of that coverage, there was no immediate jump as to who the body might have belonged to. She didn't seem to match the description of anyone reported missing, and while there was one woman who had gone missing from the area about a year prior, The likelihood that she would have been in the area all along, only to be found a year later, seemed unlikely. So with that, who was it? Locals started checking in with the women in their family just to make sure they were okay. Without hesitation, the Greensburg Police Department set up a command center right there in the middle school. School had been canceled because of the snow, so there wasn't going to be any interference with staff or students, and being right there where the investigation was unfolding was the best option. They also shut down a huge portion of North Main Street in every direction while they tried to figure out where the trash can came from and the identity of the person inside. In a perfect world, there would have been tracks in the snow leading back to where the trash can had come from, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. It could have been walked there, it could have been driven there. At that point, no one knew. By the following morning, Pittsburgh Live was reporting that even though the woman still hadn't been identified, they knew that she was about 5 foot 9, weighed roughly 140 pounds, and was wearing jeans and a gray or black hooded shirt. That narrowed down the list of who they might be looking for as far as potentially missing women and caused a telephone frenzy of everyone checking on their tall brunette female friends. The update also subtly suggested that the trash can probably hadn't just rolled under the vehicle due to ice or wind. 
a trash can holding a 5'9", 140-pound woman wasn't going to be easily moved. Whoever had put her into that can had likely purposefully placed it under that truck, a choice that I will never understand, but criminals are criminals. Did her killer want her to be found? Because the fastest way to hide a trash can would be to put it beside other trash cans. A trash can under a truck is definitely going to be noticed. But if they wanted her to be noticed, why did they put her in the trash can at all? Later that afternoon, the Greensburg Police Department held a press conference where they announced that not one, not two, but six people had been charged in the death of the woman in the trash can. The six were listed as 36-year-old Robert Masters, 27-year-old Peggy Miller, 23-year-old Ricky Smearns, 20-year-old Melvin Knight, 20-year-old Amber Meitinger, and 17-year-old Angela Marinucci. Pittsburgh Live reported that out of the six, there were three associated addresses, one on North Pennsylvania Avenue, another on Indiana Drive, and a third on Carnegie Avenue. It took one trip quick down Google Maps Lane to realize that the Pennsylvania Avenue address was just 800 feet away from the entrance of that middle school parking lot. Knowing at the very least who the accused killers were, let's dive a little into who they are. All of this happened at a time where MySpace was a thing and falling down the rabbit hole of their profiles, you would learn that Amber and Melvin were together and had recently announced that they were expecting a baby. Peggy and Masters' profiles also seemed to indicate an impending infant, but in the long run, no baby appeared, so we may never know what that was about. Nonetheless, those two were also an item. As far as Ricky, it's hard to tell how they all initially met him. I've seen it suggested that him and Melvin first met in jail and rekindled a friendship in the real world, but I can't confirm that. Either way, they ran in a lot of the same circles and frequented the same places, like homeless shelters and treatment centers and the public library where they would all go and check their MySpaces. Regardless of how and when, the two became friends, which added Ricky to that group. The last member of the group was 17-year-old Angela, and she seemed to be the glue or the mutual friend that brought all of the parties together. How the minor in the group becomes the middleman, I cannot explain, but you'll come to find out that nothing in this case makes any logical sense. Shortly after the arrests were announced, police identified the woman in the trash can as 30-year-old Jennifer Doherty. Pittsburgh Live reports that Jennifer had cognitive disabilities, which left her functioning at the same level as a 12 or 14-year-old. Her family told the outlet that even though she was 30, she looked and acted like a teenager. Jennifer Doherty was known for having an innocent kindness that cannot be taught. If she met you, she loved you, and if she loved you, she trusted you. She was the kind of person who openly gave you her trust without you having to earn it first, and it did make her family worry that someone might take advantage of that. Jennifer's last MySpace update posted on January 26th read, This is my time to make a new start for myself and making some new friends and not being afraid of anything, so this is going to be a good thing for me. 
Jennifer loved her friends and family more than anything in this world, but she also loved her independence. It wasn't always easy for her and she did struggle at times, but she was always trying her best and giving 100% of her effort. Jennifer's body wasn't found until that snowy morning on February 11th, but she hadn't been seen by her family since the morning of the 8th. According to Pittsburgh Live, she had packed a small bag of clothes that morning and hopped in the car with her stepdad who gave her a ride to a bus station in Mount Pleasant. She had an appointment to go to in Greensburg that day, and once that was over, she planned to hang out with some friends and maybe watch a movie and eat some dinner. The friends she planned to hang out with that day lived on North Pennsylvania Avenue and had been since arrested for her murder. At the time all of this was unfolding, her family didn't even know how she had met any of them. Jennifer's plans that day all seemed to initially go exactly as expected. She even called home to ask permission to stay the night at Peggy's house, which is interesting since the house on Pennsylvania Avenue was not an associated address with Peggy. Peggy was obviously there that night, but that wasn't her apartment. The apartment this all took place in was a small sliver of an old historic house that had been sectioned off into very, very tiny apartments. Jennifer told her parents that she planned to come home the next day, but she never did. They tried to get in touch with her over the next few days, but never got a response. It wasn't until they saw the police report that a woman matching her description had been found in a trash can that they called to see if it might be her. I don't think there's a situation where you hope for a no more than you do in that moment, but the answer they got was a heart-shattering yes. It was their daughter, their sister, their niece that had been found wrapped in plastic with a bag over her head, put into a trash can and shoved under a truck. Jennifer's aunt told Pittsburgh Live, If anyone knew her, this is just so completely unthinkable and it really is breaking all of our hearts. She would have trusted anyone with her last dollar and she would come through for you with anything you would ask her to do. She added, I always worried that Jenny was too trusting and maybe that's what happened, but she was just the most caring, kind individual. Details in Jennifer's case took zero time to surface and every single one of them was more devastating than the last. The public quickly learned that Jennifer had been stabbed to death, but before being stabbed, she had been tortured for two days. The medical examiner told the Post-Gazette, This is one of the most horrific cases I have seen. You have one young, defenseless woman, six people who are keeping her captive and doing all of these things, knowing she is mentally challenged. Put it all together, it is bizarre, it is extreme barbarism. Jennifer had been bound with Christmas decorations, her hair had been cut, she had been beaten with a towel rack, which was essentially broken down to be a metal pole. She was also beaten with a vacuum cleaner hose and a crutch. On top of all of that, four Action News reports that Jennifer's face had been painted with nail polish and she had been forced to drink vegetable oil, detergent, bleach, and urine. She'd also been forced to consume concoctions of different spices, medications, and feces. Human feces, the feces of those torturing her. On the kitchen table in the apartment, police found a suicide note that Jennifer had been forced to write. WTAE was able to get a copy of it, and I am going to clean up a couple of the words to make it easier to understand, but it read, I haven't been happy for a while, and I also love my mom and stepdad no matter what. 
I will always love the rest of my family also. Also, my niece and nephew would be lucky to have a better aunt than me. I am done with my life. Goodbye, signed Jennifer. Jennifer had been tortured physically and emotionally for two days before being killed and had been forced to write a fake suicide letter to steer any investigation away from those responsible. The details of Jennifer's hair being cut, the nail polish on her face, and what she was bound with were all things you could learn by simply looking at her body. But the items she was beaten with and what she was forced to consume were very specific and made it sound like at least one of the six defendants was talking. And they were. Right off the bat, Melvin admitted to stabbing Jennifer in the chest, side, and neck, while Ricky admitted to helping Melvin carry her body in the garbage can to the middle school. According to the Post-Gazette, there was actually a witness who saw them doing that, and on top of that, a neighbor was missing a trash can. That particular apartment was known for having their fair share of issues. Police were familiar with the residents, as were their neighbors. Like I said earlier, it was an old historic house that had been broken down into several small apartments, and according to the Post-Gazette, one of the people in a basement apartment had actually heard something that Tuesday morning, which would have been the day after Jennifer got there. He said that a woman's long scream had woken him up. He also said that he had heard people hollering the night before, but didn't pay it much mind because hearing fighting from that apartment was not abnormal. That's not the only neighbor that heard something, though. The following night, Wednesday night, a neighbor in a first-floor apartment told the Post-Gazette that they had heard a tussle and a heavy bam. Once again, it wasn't unusual to hear those kinds of sounds coming from that particular apartment, so she didn't call the police. She figured they would just tell her that they've been there before and there's nothing they can do. Knowing what she knows now, she wishes she had called it in. Considering the brutality and longevity of the attack on Jennifer, police had to question what the motive was. Why were they so dedicated to inflicting the pain and humiliation that they had onto her? Motive can play a huge role when it comes to a jury trial, and it was looking like there was about to be six of them, so they had to try and figure out what that was. The most likely conclusion they were able to come to was jealousy. The working theory at the time was that the teenager, Angela, was jealous of Jennifer's relationship, whatever that might have been, with Ricky. Trying to figure out exactly what relationship that was was going to be extremely difficult because, according to a comment the chief made to the Post-Gazette, whatever was going on between Jennifer and Ricky had not been going on long. However, a former roommate in that Pennsylvania Avenue apartment was about to help with that. On February 14th, the man who seems to have been the original resident of that apartment spoke to the Post-Gazette. He said that he had actually moved out the Tuesday after Jennifer got there. They'd all apparently gotten into some kind of disagreement that couldn't be settled and he was just done. That being said, 
even though Jennifer got there on Monday, this guy said he hadn't seen her and that she wasn't there when he left on Tuesday at 6.16 p.m. And while initially that might sound pretty fishy, a plumber who had come to fix a toilet that afternoon also hadn't seen Jennifer. So where was she? This was a tiny apartment and I cannot stress that enough. Where was Jennifer that this man would not have seen her? As it turns out, at some point, Jennifer had been put into the attic. The attic is also where they located several pieces of evidence related to her murder, including the items used to beat her and her bloody clothes. The former roommate told the Post-Gazette that Ricky would force Jennifer to do things with him. That Ricky wanted to have sex with Jennifer, but she wouldn't, and Ricky bullied her. While all of that was happening, he said Ricky also had a relationship with teenage Angela while simultaneously being a married man with an infant child. If you're wondering what kind of marriage Ricky was in where he was also dating a teenager and going after Jennifer, let me fill in those blanks. Ricky was a piece of shit husband and a general garbage human. According to Pittsburgh Live, he'd been charged with harassing and assaulting his wife the previous October, so four months prior to Jennifer's murder. In a PFA, or Protection from Abuse Order, his wife wrote that Ricky had sexually assaulted her, and when she asked him to stop, he punched her in the face over and over again, choked her, and threatened her with a knife. In a previous relationship, the outlet reports that a woman who'd broken up with him in 2006 filed a protective order saying that he broke a water pitcher over her head and tried to rape her. She said that he was abusive when he wasn't taking his medication. Ricky's own mother also filed a PFA against him in 2008, saying that he had pushed her, screamed at her, and threatened to kill her when she went to his apartment to get some things that she said he had stolen from her. Ricky had been released from jail less than a month before Jennifer was killed. Pennsylvania is a death penalty state, so everyone was wondering if all of these six defendants were about to face it. The DA told Pittsburgh Live that they weren't quite sure yet what they were going to do. While everyone was waiting on death penalty news, the twisted details of Jennifer's case continued to come in. Like how, according to 4Action News, at the start of Jennifer's torture, Amber and Melvin stole her phone and changed the voicemail recording to say that you had now reached Melvin, Amber, and Julia's phone. Julia was apparently what they planned to name their baby. By February 16th, the acting U.S. attorney got involved. They decided that they were going to review Jennifer's case to see if the federal government was going to either press additional charges or just bring the entire case over to federal court. There are a few situations where the federal government can take over a criminal case, and it does happen, but not often. Generally, the federal courts let the state handle their own criminal cases, so I tried to figure out what stipulation they might have been looking at, and the only one that seemed like it might fit was determining whether or not Jennifer's murder was a hate crime. Naturally, I sent over a quick text to Brett at the prosecutors because he's a federal prosecutor and asked for his thoughts. He agreed that they were probably trying to figure out whether or not Jennifer was killed because of her disability. But looking at the most likely motive here, it doesn't really seem to fit. There were no real updates as to what came from that federal review, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they determined her murder was not a hate crime and did not pursue her case any further. 
I debated on whether or not to throw this little tidbit in here, but these are terrible people, so we're doing it. On February 17th, all of the six defendants were supposed to have their first day in court, but according to the Pittsburgh Channel, they could not because every single one of them had lice. May their scalps itch forever in hell. Their first appearance might have been delayed, but the Lice Brigade did make it in on March 4th, and it was one of the most horrendous group hearings I have ever reported on. The following information comes from the extremely dedicated reporting done by the Pittsburgh Channel, KDKA, Trib Live, The Post-Gazette, and WTAE. During the hearing, the prosecution played Melvin's police interview where he detailed every single moment of torture that Jennifer endured, at least his version of events. Melvin claimed that it was Jennifer who wanted a sexual relationship with Ricky and that Ricky wasn't interested. We all know that's bullshit thanks to the ex-roommate. 17-year-old Angela, whom Melvin stated was Ricky's current girlfriend, got upset with Jennifer and beat her head against a bathroom wall. While Angela was doing that, she repeatedly asked Jennifer if she was into her man. When Jennifer would respond with what I assume was a no, Angela would tell her wrong answer. Angela's violent outburst seems to have been the catalyst of everything that followed because once she started beating Jennifer, all of the adults followed suit. At one point, Amber stomped on Jennifer's stomach and told her, now you know how it feels when a pregnant woman gets punched in the stomach. And if you're wondering when the actual hell she is even talking about, I was too. Apparently, Angela had been telling people that she was pregnant with Ricky's baby, which was absolutely not true. Jennifer had fought back at one point, hitting Angela back, and apparently Amber wanted to teach her a lesson for hitting a pregnant woman, who once again was absolutely not pregnant. But frankly, I wouldn't give a shit if she was because she was assaulting Jennifer and Jennifer had every right to fight back. The hearing went on to reveal that eventually Melvin bound Jennifer's hands and neck with Christmas lights and her legs with white Christmas garland. Throughout her torture, the six defendants would hold family meetings. At one point, Jennifer complained of being thirsty, so they held a family meeting about what they would allow her to drink. They decided on a mixture of Amber's feces, Angela's urine, oil, and soap. She was also given cologne, spices added to other mixtures they made her drink, cigarette ash, sleeping pills, and antibiotics. When they weren't forcing her to consume the unthinkable, they humiliated her by throwing full soda bottles at her head, pouring oatmeal, perfume, and water on her, and they also stole money from her purse and would go to the local corner store to buy things with it. After days of torture, Jennifer was in so much pain that she could not stand it. She wanted to go to a hospital, but instead of taking her to get the medical attention she desperately needed or just letting her go home, another family meeting was held. During that one, all six defendants agreed that Jennifer had to die. In their eyes, it was either her or them, that if she told anyone what they had done to her, their lives would be over. With that decision, Melvin told police that Ricky asked her if she wanted to die. When Jennifer said no, he asked her, well, why are you letting me do this? As he proceeded to beat her. As he continued his assault, he asked her if she was letting him do it because she loved him. 
In Melvin's versions of events, Ricky went and grabbed a knife, then gave it to Melvin and told him to stab Jennifer. Melvin claims that he hesitated for a bit before stabbing her three times in the chest, though later reports say that he admitted to stabbing her seven times in total. Those initial stab wounds did not kill Jennifer, and when Ricky chimed in with, damn, that bleep is still alive, Melvin stabbed her again, this time in the throat. And I would have said whatever the bleeped word was, but it's bleeped everywhere, so all we know is that it was an expletive. Jennifer was still alive when, according to Amber, Ricky was given the knife and continued the attack, cutting Jennifer's wrists. After that, Melvin says that it was Angela who chimed in, saying, Is she dead yet? I just want her dead. With that, Ricky reportedly choked Jennifer with the Christmas lights she had been bound with. Because this was a group hearing with all defendants, Ricky's interview was also played, and of course his version of events were a little different than Melvin's. While Melvin claimed that Jennifer was into Ricky and Ricky wasn't interested, Ricky told a totally different story. Ricky claims that he was the one in love with Jennifer, but that he didn't want to continue the relationship with her because he was with his teenage girlfriend, Angela. And let's be clear that loyalty is nothing Ricky is familiar with, let alone any semblance of being a decent human being, so fuck this guy. Ricky denied stabbing Jennifer at all, but did admit to cutting her wrist because he claims he was scared of Melvin. Interesting version of events, considering Melvin claimed that he was doing what Ricky told him to do. Ricky added a little emotional fanfare, saying that he was crying on the inside while all of this was happening. And I counted, and crying on the inside has saved a total of zero lives ever. While these interview tapes played in court, several of the defendants laughed out loud. Ricky did seem to be a little upset, according to people who were there, but let's be clear that the only emotion that mattered in that courtroom was the emotional agony from Jennifer's family. Jennifer was this wholesome, phenomenal, beautiful sunshine of a person who was taken advantage of by predatory piece-of-shit criminals, and her family was having to sit through the most unimaginable list of horrifying events that took up their loved one's final days. While they were having to listen to every horrifying detail, they also had to listen to her accused killers laugh out loud. Defense attorneys did what defense attorneys are paid to do and tried to argue a lack of evidence linking whoever their client was at the time, and Melvin actually smirked, rolled his eyes, and asked, why the bleep are we here? Why the bleep are we in jail? It came out later from one of the defendants that they had all planned to escape jail after that hearing. Obviously, they're idiots, and that didn't end up happening. Your rage listening to this is probably close to matching the rage of the DA at that point, because on March 25th, he announced that he was officially considering the death penalty for five of the six defendants. And if I had to guess, the only reason it was five of the six is because Angela was a minor at the time and legally could not face the death penalty. Three months later, the official decision was made. While only some of the defendants participated in the final moments that ended Jennifer's life, 
three of them would be facing the death penalty, Ricky, Melvin, and Amber. Masters, Peggy, and Angela would all be facing life in prison. Ricky and Melvin's attorneys argued that their clients suffered from mental deficiencies that should make them ineligible for the death penalty, but the DA's response was that they were both functioning at a normal level and understood what they were doing when they did it. When it comes to the death penalty, you have to argue aggravating factors, and court documents were now alleging that Jennifer may have been sexually assaulted during her torture. At this point in the case, new information started to slow down, but in September of 2010, we did learn that Amber gave birth to Melvin's baby in jail. According to the Pittsburgh Channel, officials were trying to figure out where the baby was going to go, whether it would be with a relative or into foster care, and in the end, the baby did wind up going with a family member. In November of 2010, we started to hear more from the lesser-known defendants, Peggy and Masters. In a hearing, they claimed that they had actually tried to help Jennifer escape, but failed. They said that Jennifer wanted to go to the hospital and had asked Peggy to take pictures of her injuries and send them to her mom. Peggy did have a camera, and that camera was located after the arrest, but no photos of Jennifer had been taken, and obviously none had been sent to her mother. According to WXPI and Trib Live, Peggy and Masters claimed that one day when the other four defendants went to the corner store with money stolen from Jennifer's card, these two went outside and retrieved the clothes that had been taken off of Jennifer's body and thrown into the yard and were trying to get her dressed when the other four showed back up. They claimed they weren't able to get her out in time and a final family meeting was called. It was in that family meeting that all six of them agreed that Jennifer should die. And I want to repeat here that it was all six of them that voted for Jennifer's death, not four. Masters told the court that he only voted yes because he was afraid for his own life if he said no. And while it was a little hard to believe that these two helped Jennifer with anything, it does seem to be the consensus that it's an accurate retelling of events. That being said, there were phones available to both of them throughout all of this. They could have easily called 911, they could have called for an ambulance or for the police to come to that house. There were plenty of things that they could have done to help her. So yeah, Peggy and Masters were still facing life in prison. A month later, Masters requested that all of his charges be dropped, but the only thing that dropped was his morale because that did not happen. In February of 2011, Melvin's attorney announced that they intended to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, which was a very stupid idea. It wasn't going to work because in order for an insanity plea to be effective, you have to prove that the defendant did not know the difference between right and wrong when committing the crime. It's hard to convince a jury that you didn't know you were doing the wrong thing when you clearly tried to cover it up. They hid the weapons they used against Jennifer in the attic, hit her when people came by, forced her to write a suicide letter, and put her body into a stolen trash can, then hid it under a truck at a nearby school. Trying to convince anyone that this sadistic dipshit didn't know that what he was doing was wrong was going to be next to impossible. But it might have also been their only option because at this point, the evidence stacked against these defendants was insurmountable. While Melvin was tossing around the idea of taking his chances at an insanity plea that was absolutely going to fail, 
Masters and Peggy were rumored to be working on a plea deal. And if they were working on a plea deal, I'm willing to bet it included testifying against the other defendants, who were all likely shitting their pants at this point. In May of 2011, the first trial began, and it started with teenage Angela. The information on her trial comes from the Post-Gazette, TribLive, WTAE, and the Sacramento Bee. The prosecution argued that Angela was the prime instigator in the torture and killing of Jennifer, though her defense claims it's preposterous to think that a teenager can influence five grown adults. And while I would normally agree with that, from everything we've learned up until this point, she does seem to be the linchpin. Angela's version of events was much different than both Melvin and Ricky's. She claimed that she didn't even want Ricky because she already had a boyfriend named Jed a guy whose name we hadn't heard until now and will never hear again. Her Jed claim was either the absolute truth or absolute bullshit, and I think we all know where this is going. Angela claimed that throughout the torture, she was too scared to stop Ricky, emphasis on him being a ringleader here, and said that Ricky was the one who wanted Jennifer out of the picture so that he could have Angela. So are you with Jed or are you with Ricky? Because it sounds like you're with Ricky, and if you're not with Ricky, why did you violently attack Jennifer? Essentially, she tried to distance herself as far away from everything that happened as she could, and her story made little to no sense. Angela tried her hardest to control the narrative of that trial, but the prosecution had all of the ducks in all of the rows. They called an inmate to the stand who had been in jail with Angela following her arrest. The inmate testified that Angela told her that she had actually lured Jennifer to that apartment that Monday. Angela had used Ricky's phone and texted Jennifer, asking her to come to the house so they could talk about getting married. The inmate testified that Angela lured Jennifer to the house because she believed Jennifer was sleeping with her boyfriend, Ricky, not imaginary Jed. It looks like Angela might have come to that conclusion after a phone call she overheard about a week prior. A friend of the group who had visited the apartment about a week before Jennifer was killed testified that while he and Ricky were smoking cigarettes on the porch, Ricky was talking on the phone with Jennifer. He said that Angela came up from behind and overheard the conversation and said, I'm going to kill that bitch. While in jail, Angela seemed to revel in the attention she was getting in the news, reportedly jumping up and down on her cell bed knowing that she was going to be on TV. Another inmate testified that she would constantly bring up the murder. When other inmates were complaining about the food they were being served, Angela reportedly said, It's okay, I feed feces to the R word. I could not bring myself to repeat that word in this actual quote. It's a word that Angela reportedly called Jennifer repeatedly throughout her torture. From what I can tell, none of the inmates that testified were offered anything in return for their testimony. One of them told WTAE that she testified because she wanted to make sure Jennifer's family knew that she fought back. Angela's co-defendant, Amber, who was facing the death penalty at that point, testified against Angela going against the wishes of her own attorney. Her testimony went on for six hours, and Amber did seem visibly distraught throughout. Amber testified that during one of those family meetings, Ricky asked the six of them who would be a more appropriate mother to his infant son. I can only assume that he was talking about the infant son that was living with his mother, Ricky's wife, who had a PFA out against him. 
None of them, including Ricky, was going to have any hand in raising that child, but he wanted the family to vote on whether or not Jennifer would be a better mother to the child or Angela. It looks like the meeting didn't go particularly well because at the second meeting, he vented that he was having a hard time choosing between the two. While Jennifer was tied up being violently abused, one of her abusers was polling the crowd as to whether or not she should raise his baby. It wasn't until the third meeting that all six of them unanimously voted that Jennifer had to die. Amber went on to testify to the torture Jennifer endured. That testimony included her saying that she watched Melvin strip Jennifer of her clothes, gag her with a sock, and rape her. Melvin's attorneys would later argue a lack of genetic material or DNA to support Amber's claim of sexual assault, but a forensic pathologist argued that a lack of those things does not mean that it didn't happen and isn't even unusual. Jennifer had been tortured for days, so the DNA evidence could have been naturally eliminated or even washed away. Amber went on to talk about the final moments of Jennifer's life and said that when she time and time again survived her stab and slash wounds, Angela made it clear that she wanted Jennifer dead. Once Jennifer was dead, Angela wanted to humiliate her. Amber testified that Angela told Peggy to go find the Christmas lights that were battery-operated and was pissed when she came back with a kind that plugged in. Angela had wanted the lights to be flashing when Jennifer's body was found. Angela, being the dumbass she is, decided to go against all reason and testified in her own defense. As to be expected, that did not go well, and thankfully so, because on May 19th, the jury found her guilty of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, two counts of conspiracy, and one count of kidnapping. Even though she was 17 at the time of the murder, she was tried as an adult and sentenced to life in prison. The Post-Gazette quoted the prosecutor as saying, Jennifer will always stick with me. The picture of her and how she was found and what was done to her, impossible to forget. Next on the list was Melvin. He had initially pled not guilty, but in August of 2012, changed his mind and pled guilty to first-degree murder, second-degree murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit murder and kidnapping. Since he was facing the death penalty, his sentencing hearing became somewhat of a mini-trial and lasted for nine days. The prosecution was going to have to prove those aggravating factors. His defense tried to argue that he shouldn't get the death penalty because he was antisocial with behavioral issues and mental disabilities. A report from WTAE also mentioned that he had fallen out of a moving vehicle when he was young and that he was born to a father in jail, leaving him without much guidance as a child. The prosecution's argument was simple, that none of those things were an excuse for the torture that Jennifer endured at his hands before he killed her. The jury deliberated for a whopping two hours before sentencing Melvin to death. The judge told him simply, may God have mercy on your soul. Ricky took his case to trial in February of 2013, and it went on for a month. He too had a pretty tragic upbringing, though seems to have gotten adopted by a nice family by the time he was 10. 
According to WTAE, a neighbor of his adoptive parents testified that in 1997, Ricky broke into their house and stole a bunch of stuff, including knives, bullets, and cash, and in the process, had done $12,000 worth of damage. All of that considered, the neighbor said that Ricky wasn't a bad kid, something the next witness would disagree with. WTAE reported on the testimony of a 26-year-old woman who also testified about 1997. She said that she was 10 at the time and had stopped by Ricky's adopted parents' house to go swimming. While she was there, she says that Ricky sexually assaulted her in the basement. She also recounted two other occasions where he reportedly held a needle to her throat and said he threatened to kill her twice. Just like Melvin, Ricky was found guilty and sentenced to death. CBS quoted his defense attorney as saying, I am disappointed in the verdict. I fail to see how a person who has had the horrific background this child had isn't entitled to some mercy in his sentence, but maybe you get the mercy you give. Jennifer's family, who had had to sit through three of these defendants' trials and sentencing hearings, told CBS, justice is being done. It's been a long, long trial, but Jennifer had a voice today. Within a month, Ricky was already asking for a new trial. In December of 2013, Amber, who was the only female facing the death penalty, took a plea down to third-degree murder for her testimony against the other defendants. She was sentenced to 40 to 80 years in prison. A few months later, Peggy and Masters followed suit. Peggy was given 35 to 74 years, while Masters was given 30 to 70 years, the lightest sentence of them all. Within a few months of that, Masters was asking if he could take back his guilty plea and try his hand at a shorter sentence. This should be where this case ends, but it's not. In August of 2017, state and federal appeals court deemed that life sentences to minors was unconstitutional outside of extreme cases. Because Angela was 17 when Jennifer was killed, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered a lower court to review her previous sentencing. It wasn't a guarantee that her sentencing would change, but there was a good chance that it would. Angela did get her second chance and told the court that if she could take everything back, she would. But that's the thing about murder. You can't take it back. WTAE reported on a psychiatrist's testimony who stated that while those around Angela said that she had shown a desire to change and had been a model inmate, she continued to downplay her role in the murder. She still insisted that she only played a minor role and that she had no romantic feelings for Ricky. The psychiatrist testified that Angela could not be rehabilitated until she accepted responsibility for what she had done. Ultimately, Angela's life sentence was reduced to 40 years for first-degree murder and 20 to 40 years for conspiracy. She would have to serve out the initial 40 years before she could even start the second sentence of 20 to 40. She'd eventually be eligible for parole, which is something she didn't initially have, but even that wasn't good enough for Angela. According to Trip Live, she accused the judge of being unfair, claiming that the judge ignored how much she had matured in the previous 12 years and even accused the judge of being biased due to the fact that the judge admitted that the case had given her nightmares, which is such a weak argument to make in this situation. If your case is horrendous enough to give a judge who has seen damn near anything nightmares, there is a solid chance you deserve the sentence you got. Angela's hissy fit failed and she'll be eligible for parole when she is well into her 70s.
Once again, I would love to tell you that this is where the case ends, but Melvin crept back in and decided that he wanted to take back his guilty plea and claim innocence. That didn't work, but he did get a new sentencing hearing. Melvin was hoping to avoid death, but couldn't. He was sentenced a second time to death, and once and for all, Jennifer's family had hoped that maybe all of this was over. As far as I can find, the attempts at new trials have stopped, and many of the defendants have acknowledged that they have come to terms with their punishment. As of yet, neither Ricky nor Melvin have an execution date. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Jennifer's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Right, guys, we are officially at the end of this episode, which means that it's time to share a view that made my entire day. This one is from Michelangie. It says, Heather, thank you. As a huge fan of true crime podcasts, I'm so glad that I found someone who just gets right to the point. I can only listen to like four different podcasts because I find so many just like to ramble about the most irrelevant things and I'm just not with it. You're a stellar host. I am so glad that you found your people here with the no small talk. I do have some podcasts that I love that have small talk, but I'm not one of them. Also, I think that it'll be weird to have small talk with one single host. You guys would just be hearing me talk about myself to myself to you guys. I don't know. It'd be weird. Um, anywho, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to say something nice to me. It means more than you know. I absolutely love you guys. And I would